If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When Ada had her first two children, her mother was invited to name them. And, yep, she named the first one Byron and the second one Annabella. And the third one was called Gordon, which was actually Byron's middle name. So she definitely was perpetuating the um, idea of Byron's presence. That was Miranda Seymour talking about Lord Byron's wife and daughter. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Charlotte Hodgman, the Deputy Editor of BBC History magazine. Lord Byron is widely regarded as one of Britain's greatest poets, but his story has often overshadowed those of his wife and daughter. Author Miranda Seymour's recent book, In Byron's Wake, shines a light on the lives of the poet's wife, Annabella Milbank, and their brilliant mathematician daughter, Ada Lovelace, examining how Byron continued to exert influence over their lives, even after his death. Staff writer Ellie Cawthon spoke to Miranda to find out more. 
Today I'm joined in our studio uh, by Miranda Seymour. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Um, so you've written a new book in Byron's Wake, which is a dual biography of Annabella Milbank and Ada Lovelace, who people might perhaps know um, first off as the wife and daughter of Lord Byron. I wonder whether you could just start us off by introducing us to these two remarkable women and telling us why you wanted to write a biography of them. I think where I'd start is with Lady Byron, whose very engaging picture in the actually in the book as a little girl aged about seven already tells you that this is a formidable character, extremely confident little girl who knew just where she was going in life and who set her heart on reforming the greatest rake of the time, who was Lord Byron. And the marriage came unstuck within a year, but she never ceased to love him, or so I tried to show in my book. Um, she is a person who I discovered had been really one of the greatest reformers, never a very exciting subject, because how much can you say about prisons and hospitals and schools, all of which she had a major influence on. But reform is something people tend to go a little to sleep when they're reading about. Nevertheless, her reforming career was completely trashed after her death in 1860. And the reputation she acquired from the gentleman of the press in 1869 who said Lady Byron stands lower than the lowest harlot on the darkest corner of Piccadilly. Well, that shockingly in 2018 is where her reputation still stands. So there I had what I adore as a biographer, which is a challenge. Let's rescue Lady Byron. Her daughter, Ada Lovelace, has already been rescued. You could almost say too much so. Ada um, is the woman who famously previsioned the computer in 1843. Ada Lovelace is an extraordinary personality today. She's, I think, the only woman who has her very own day coming up to the 10th Ada Lovelace Day this autumn. And a NASA programme, a space programme, was named after her. Um, There's an Ada Digital Institute, there's an Ada College, and it goes on and on and on. So while her mother has vanished from sight, Ada, who when she died in 1852, the same age as her father, Lord Byron, they were both only 36, which is pretty heartbreaking to contemplate. But at that point, she had led such a disgraceful life that her mother's real object was to clear Ada's name, which basically meant let's just get rid of everything to do with Ada and just leave her with a clean bill of health. So Ada had no reputation, neither good nor bad. She just vanished. You mentioned there about um, Lady Byron, Annabella's reputation being put through the ringer after her Mm. death. Can you give us any indication as to why that might have happened? It's a complicated story. And one of the reasons that Lady Byron was put through the ringer was that she had 
a great rival in the form of Byron's last mistress. Teresa Guicciali had once upon a time been a beautiful young girl, a married woman, with whom Byron exiled to Europe after his marriage to Annabella, which all ended in disgrace and shock, and he had to leave the country. Um, He finally fetched up with the lovely young but married Teresa. And she, over the years, very much like Lady Byron, they both continued to believe after Byron's death that he had always loved them and only them, i.e. each woman. So Teresa... In 1868, that's eight years after Lady Byron's death, published an impenetrably dreary book called um, Lord Byron and the Witnesses of His Life. And in this book, she devoted an entire chapter to describing Lady Byron as the coldest cruelest, most wicked woman. And she also described um, a Lord Byron, who, if any listeners know anything about him, was a a libertine, a rake. Um, He drank brandy like nobody's business. He was very wild. He was very volatile. He was indeed mad, bad and dangerous to know. Not so Teresa's Byron. He emerged from her book as somebody who had only ever drunk water. He had occasionally gone to bed with a young woman because she simply threw herself at him. And what else could a poor man do who was a perfect gentleman? And this was Teresa's Byron, married to this cold, dreadful woman who was Lady Byron. And what I cannot explain, and nobody else has ever been able to explain, is just why that version, the Teresa version of Lady Byron, caught the fancy of the gentleman. I say the gentleman because the um, Blackwells, Blackwoods and the Quarterly and the Edinburgh were all written by anonymous gentlemen, then not by women. <clears throat> they all bought the Teresa version. And so this extraordinary new version of Annabella emerged with them all writing in the most inflated prose about, you know, Lord Byron has always been a gentleman. His um, half-sister, with whom he famously had an affair, was an angel with her children lisping around her at the hearth. Well, not so the Augusta we'll come to know in my book. And Lady Byron was as Teresa had presented her, the wickedest woman in the world. That was what they called her. So really it was a question of going back and looking at her letters and her friendships and trying to view them in an objective way. Now, the problem I had was that in this book, I'm dealing with three personalities, Byron, Ada and Annabella. Two of those people, Byron and Ada, are, without doubt, the funniest, wittiest, liveliest writers of letters that have ever existed. I mean, reading the letters of Byron and his daughter is an absolute joy. You'd want to take them off to a a desert island. Poor Annabella, as she well knew, she frequently said it, she could not write. She tried to release her feelings in verse, which was even worse, pardon the rhyme, and apparently in 
person. She was enchanting. She um, was very, very merry. She called her home Liberty Hall and would invite people to come and stay for as long as they wanted. And she was always forgetting about meals and running off to do something impetuously. She's very, very unlike this sober personality we've come to know. And also, I realised that Byron in those days would never, never have left his only daughter in the hands of a woman for whom he did not have an immense respect. It's a boring word, respect, but it counts for something back in 1816 when whatever the man had done, if he'd, I don't know, thrown Annabella down the stairs, if he'd shot her legs off, he would still have had the right to her daughter. And he chose not to do that. I think the cornerstone of this story and your book is inevitably the relationship between Annabella and Byron. And um, the way you portray it, it was a case of opposites attract. I wonder whether you could just, um, for people who might not know the story at all, give us a taste of some of the drama involved in it and what happened. What happened was that um, Annabella, who I should explain, was an only child, like Byron himself, as he noted, and she was extremely spoiled by adoring old parents. They'd waited 17 years to give birth to Annabella. She was known before she even married, met Byron as the pattern of the North. She came from County Durham, which is sort of up, up towards Scotland. And she had become celebrated for her good works, her virtue and her wealth. And it was, I'm afraid, very likely to have been the wealth that attracted a delightful, famous young man who was in deep, deep trouble for his not very secret any longer affair with his half-sister, which needed to be covered by a marriage, but also <clears throat> for the fact that he was a reckless spendthrift. And Annabella was rumoured by everybody to be coming into a whopping fortune. Byron was by the time that he met Annabella, heavily in debt. And he remained heavily in debt throughout his marriage and indeed throughout his life, even though eventually he did acquire a large chunk of Annabella's fortune, which much to his dismay went via her mother so that the looked-for wealth didn't come his way until long after the marriage. Anyway, in 1812, um, Byron and Annabella met at a ball, there's a breakfast waltzing party, being given by the very naughty Caroline Lamb. And Caroline Lamb was already by that point after Byron, and they were about to embark on a, a huge affair. And the interesting twist to the tale is that Caroline Lamb, who was married to the future Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, was the daughter-in-law of Lady Melbourne, who was Annabella's aunt. Complicated, I know, but it is important because Lady Melbourne became the prime fixer behind the scenes of the Byron marriage. And she was almost like a sort of adopted mother of a rather wicked kind to Byron and would be egging him on and then nudging Annabella towards it. And even at one moment early on when Byron really was desperate for money and to find anybody who would provide him with it. So he first of all, in 1812, he'd barely met Annabella, sent 
an invitation to marry him via her aunt. And Annabella, and I, I personally think good for her, said, thanks, but no, how dare you? You know, you barely know me. What, what are you doing? And her aunt was very annoyed and summoned her in and said, how dare you turn down the greatest poet of the age? What are your reasons? And they had a tremendous standoff. Anyway, the minute that Annabella had decided she wouldn't buy, marry him, she changed her mind and began to regret it and to drop massive hints that actually she was very available, which Byron rather annoyingly refused to take. And she would keep saying, I'm actually free. And he would say, I'm so sad you're not free, if only you were. This went on incredibly for two years of letters between them with a kind of um, a courtship that's very fascinating to follow because of the fact that Byron's wonderful witty letters suddenly attempt to become like Annabella's letters, which are desperately serious and solemn. So you suddenly see a Byron you've never seen before saying, oh, yes, I've been thinking very, very hard about God. And yes, I'm very interested in Italian literature. Do you think Byron? But he's trying to please Annabella. And there is no doubt that as with Mary Shelley, with whom he spent a fascinating, extraordinary summer in Geneva when she composed Frankenstein just after the marriage. And I would say that Lady Byron and Mary Shelley are the only two women who Byron ever really was frightened of. He was frightened of their brains and their integrity. And this did not bode well for the marriage because respecting a woman was one thing, being married to her was another. And the minute they were married, Byron started to tell Annabella that he was doomed for her, that he was going to bring her misfortune, that everything was going to go wrong. They moved to London to a big house in Piccadilly, found, needless to say, by Lady Melbourne. And within weeks of the marriage... Annabella had, interestingly, asked Augusta Lee, who was Byron's half-sister with whom he'd been having this huge affair, to stay. And that's one of the many fascinating quandaries that this whole marriage presents. Why would Annabella ask to stay with her, a sister-in-law, with whom she had just spent, she said, a sojourn in hell, that this was during the honeymoon, with Byron asking both of them to kiss him and saying, which of you kisses me better, and sending Annabella to bed so he could have a nice chat and probably something else besides with Augusta. And yet about Annabella became almost dependent upon Augusta. And this was an attachment that remained very, very close all through the marriage, despite the fact that Annabella later became convinced that all through the year of her marriage, Byron had continued his affair with Augusta in her own house. Annabella became, after the marriage to Byron, a figure who was singled out, as was her daughter, Ada, Miss Byron. Lady Byron and Miss Byron had attached to them, in a sense, the millstone of this name. Byron himself went off to Greece and in 1824 died when little Ada was only seven years old. But they were tarred, if you like, with the name of this man who had been a great libertine and who Annabella famously had left. 
And I think it's partly for that reason that Annabella, who was desperate to preserve her once glorious reputation, which had been very badly tarnished by this year of marriage to Byron, set herself with her huge fortune to reform England in a very major way. All education that was not for people who went to the um, schools like Eton and Harrow was really propped up by a system of welfare and wealthy men and women. And Annabella became a key figure in this. She set up her own schools, including one that fascinatingly actually employed two black fugitive slaves as, as teachers. This was in a village school in the 1850s. Incredibly brave thing to do. Um, she reformed prison systems. She reformed hospitals. Um, she set up places for what were then called fallen women. And at the end of her life, she was regarded as the greatest reformer of her age. As you mentioned at the start, her daughter, Ada, is now considered one of the key pioneers of computing. I wonder whether you could just explain for uh, listeners who might not know where that reputation came from. Ada actually was never brought up to be a mathematician. She was highly volatile and capricious and charming. I'm very, very much her father's child and also with her father's um, volatility to a tremendous degree. She could capsize um, the beginning of a letter with the end of it. At the beginning, she adored you, and at the end, she hated you. And the maths was her mother's idea for a way of calming Ada down. But Ada took to maths, and really because there's a sort of idea that because she was posh, if you like, she could just summon up any teacher she wanted. Well, there were loads of very clever English girls then. It wasn't because she was posh. It was because she was Byron's daughter. It had this intriguing mystique. Everybody wanted to be in contact with this extraordinary young woman. And this resulted in her getting um, somebody called Mary Somerville, who was one of the most remarkable women of the age in terms of maths. And then Augustus de Morgan, who was the first person to deal with differential calculus. And Ada was a very willing and charming pupil. And she also at that time met Charles Babbage, who was a crotchety, difficult, brilliant man, the age of the father she'd never known, who was trying to set up the money to fund an extraordinary machine. The first one was called the Difference Engine. And the one that Ada is famously associated with was called the Analytical Engine, which is so obscure, so difficult and so huge, it was the size of a, a railway locomotive, that still only a tiny portion of it is being built today. Ada's extraordinary achievement, one which still takes my breath away, is that Babbage had set down a description of this wonderful machine he was going to build. He'd drawn up charts showing what it would be like, but nothing had been built. 
And somebody who had admired his work in Italy at a conference he went to in 1840 had written in French a description of it. Ada decided that she would take that paper, translate it into English, and then, which was quite common in those days, and with Babbage's approval, she would add her own explanation. And it is that explanation which, in 1853, Alan Turing looked back and said, oh, my God, she foresaw the computer. And the thing that's incredible to think about today and says a lot about the attitude to women then is that had people listened to Ada and followed what she was saying, we could have had computers by 1850. She wasn't incredibly ahead of her time. She was um, pioneering and incredibly intelligent. But she did, she wasn't an angel. Um, and I think, as you say, and now um, she's become this this one-dimensional figure almost, only a mathematician, but she did actually have quite a troubled life as well. You're absolutely right. And I do worry about that and I've tried to rectify it in the book because she has indeed only been identified as a mathematician. And she was a very good mathematician, but as Ada herself was always the first to say really what her skill was to combine imagining with her reasoning side. And it was that imagination that allowed her to say, could this wonderful machine compose music? Could it make different languages? Could do all this? But Ada at the same time was pursuing many different ideas. She wanted to be the greatest singer in England. And I think from her friends, very polite responses about you sing wonderfully in the drawing room about your friends really like you. Um, We know that she was not a great singer. She was a very serious harpist and actually um, played the harp sometimes for up to six hours a day, which takes one's breath away. She was apparently very good. She was an incredibly modern young woman. Unlike her dad, who loved being Lord Byron, Ada, who became Lady Lovelace, delighted in being called Miss Incog and would take a false name. And there was a wonderful letter I found by her where she talks about running off to Oxford Street in London um, to get herself something from a quick restaurant and then popping back for a chat with somebody before calling in somebody to talk to her at 12 o'clock at night in her sanctum, the somebody being a man. Ada was no angel. She behaved with complete indifference to convention, supported by her husband, who was rather splendid in this respect. She would go out riding, which was considered terribly shocking, with married men in London in the park. She had probably an affair, the the correspondence has all been burned long since, with a man called John Cross, who actually took her to the cleaners and had a a wife who he was secretly married to and poor Ada, unbeknownst to her, was supporting. So that was a very messy bit of Ada's life, ending after her death with blackmail and goodness knows what else. But the worst of it for poor Ada was that believing in her mathematical skills, she went to the races. And at the Derby in, I think it was 1850, she put her money on a winner and as very often happens, that led her to believe that she had the magic touch. And a whole ring of very, very sweet old men who were captivated by Ada became her loyal supporters, investing all of their money too. And they went down the plug hole. 
And by the time that Ada was dying of cancer and still not daring to tell her mother just how bad things were, she was pawning her husband's diamonds. She was sending messages to the tipsters and she was being blackmailed by some of these bookmakers who were coming to visit her and threatening. It, it's a ghastly story and one needs to know it. That's the other side of Ada. Ada never knew her father and um, he died when she was still a child. What impact did he have on her, though, his legacy? Because, of course, he was still incredibly famous when she was, Enormous. even after he died. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that Byron was the biggest influence, bigger than her mother even, on Ada's life. Um, she actually knew so little about him when she was a child that when she was taken to see the ship that had brought his remains back from Greece, she wrote to her little cousin and said, Papa's ship has just come back. And a lot of the Byron family had been naval figures. And she thought he was a sea captain, which shows how much she knew about Byron. But all through her childhood, a vast, wonderful portrait of Byron, very famous today. It's a picture of him dressed up as an Albanian with a sort of wonderful silken costume and a, a silver scimitar across him, was hung up in her mother's house behind a green curtain. Well, this has been made a lot of mockery of by previous biographers. But if you think about it, poor Lady Byron, she can hardly hang with everybody looking at it, a portrait of the husband who she left and who is the most scandalous figure of the time. So I don't blame her for the green curtain, but I do blame the biographers who suppose that little Ada never looked behind the green curtain. For heaven's sake, this is her father. Of course she did. Her mother read her some of Byron's poems by the time she was about 14. At 15, I think very much emulating her father Ada attempted to elope with somebody. By the time she was 19, a suitable husband had been found, and I find this fascinating, chosen by Lady Byron and Mrs Somerville. And the reason they chose Lord King, later Lord Lovelace, was for his love of Byron. He'd actually had himself painted exactly in the pose of the Byron portrait with the scimitar and all the rest. He'd gone out to work in Greece. He had all the fields of his Surrey estate renamed after Byron's poems. He had Crede Byron, Believe in Byron, as if anybody would, carved on a beam across his brand new house. And Ada and he lived in a state of mutual bewitchment with her father. Which really, I think, is an incredible choice from her mother since her own marriage to Byron went so catastrophically wrong. It, it gets stranger than that because when Anna, um, Ada had her first two children, her mother was invited to name them. And, yep, she named the first one Byron and the second one Annabella. And the third one was called Gordon, which was actually Byron's middle name. So she definitely was perpetuating the um, idea of Byron's presence. And Lady Byron did, until the end of her days, um, convince herself that Byron's last words had been for her. In fact, sadly, Byron died um, pretty much incoherent. And nobody knew what, what he'd quite said. Perhaps he did say that. But her love for Byron never, never subsided. And it was just, I think, very difficult for her as a Victorian woman, which is to me one of the fascinations of this whole story. It's the romantics evolving into the Victorians and being affected by history. But she could not give up 
on the idea that Byron had loved her and that if only she'd been given the chance, she could have saved him. She clung to this idea until she died. If you wanted uh, readers to take something away from the book about these two women, what would it be? I think they are both inspirational women in their very different ways. I think that both of them flouted the um, image of the times of the Angel of the Hearth. And Annabella went her own way completely. She was very, very headstrong. She could have been today an extremely good head of a bank. She checked everything meticulously. She had no time for any man who couldn't do his figures properly or indeed obey her wishes. And I have to say, I rather love Annabella for this. I I think well done her. And Ada, well, it's impossible not to admire Ada's enterprising spirit and the way that she just defied all the rules of the time. She would not be corralled into being a good young woman or a virtuous wife. She knew what she wanted from the world. It's tragic that she died at 36. During those last terrible years when she was losing a lot of money on the race course, she was also exploring the idea of a thing which seems to have been an early form of the spectroscope, which would be a way of identifying the materials of distant stars. She was obsessed all her life with astronomy, and that was the direction she was moving in more and more. And it's Ada's questing spirit that I think is the most inspiring. That was Miranda Seymour. Miranda's book, In Byron's Wake, is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. Okay, well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, but please do join us again on Thursday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 